Welcome everyone. Good morning. I just want to remind you of some um, basic ground rules for this class. There is a microphone in the back. Uh, Carlos, our friend, has it. We are recording this class, so all your comments and if you're going to volunteer to read a Bible text, please pick up the mic, raise your hand, it'll come to you, and please speak up into the mic. The mic is only for recording purposes, it's not for amplification, so uh, you're still going to have to speak up loud for everyone to hear. And also, another note, there will be no class, no revelation class next week. Uh, both of the teachers, myself, as well as Norman, uh, will be out of town for graduations in other states, so we won't be here, but uh, the week after that, uh, Norman will be picking up with the seven seals. So today we're being a little bit ambitious. Uh, what are we trying to do today? Uh, we need to wrap up a few loose ends, just three points or so from Revelation class last week. And then we are going to try to hit the high points in both Revelation chapter 4 and 5. So we're going to try to accomplish all of those things today. Uh, so let's get right to it. <clears throat> let's bow our heads for prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, this morning we are thankful for the opportunity to study your word. As we continue to seek a better understanding of this book, which is a revelation of your son Jesus Christ, may we be able to understand his character more fully so that we may be more like him. Be with us as we study now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 3 and we'll tie up a few loose ends. Revelation chapter 3, we're still talking about Laodicea. And I want to particularly deal with the end of the message to Laodicea. In verse 19, it says, As many as I love... I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. So Christ is being very honest. He says, look, I'm giving you guys some strong counsel. I'm rebuking and chastening you. But what does that mean? Hebrews 11, let's look there. Or excuse me, Hebrews 12, verse 11. Let's have a volunteer read that one for us. Microphone. Hebrews 12, verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Okay. So chase, being chastened by Christ now may not be comfortable, but there's a purpose to it. According to Hebrews 12, it says, Afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. So Christ's chastening leads to righteousness. And in verse 20, back in Revelation 3, verse 20, this is the greatest need. All of the other things that we talked about, the white raiment, the eye salve, the gold trod in the fire, all of those things really come naturally when you receive uh, what Christ is offering in verse 20. Verse 20, it says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him, and he will sup, and I will sup with him, and he with me. A lot could be said about that one verse. I encourage you to go study some of the parables of Christ. Christ's parables. He has certain parables that talk about uh, eating together, suppers, about being a servant, and about knocking at the door. He has several parables all dealing with those things, and they're all related to this text. But just the one thing I want to mention here is that what Christ above all desires for us is to allow him to come in. He wants to come in. And we mentioned last week that one of the key messages to the church of Colossae, which is also to be read in the church of Laodicea, is the idea of the mystery of God. And the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Revelation 3 verse 20, the whole gist or the main point of this text is Christ wants to come in. And Christ in you, the hope of glory, is the mystery of God. And in Revelation chapter 10, the mystery of God will be finished when the seven angel begins to sound. So Revelation chapter 3, the church of Laodicea, is chock full of relationships with end-of-time messages. And the bottom line with the church of Laodicea is they need to live the life of righteousness by faith. That's the key. Righteousness by faith is the message to Laodicea. And it also happens to be the message that will bring Jesus back. So very important stuff in the church of Laodicea. Okay, to wrap it up, uh, there's one point that will connect us directly to chapter 4. It says, verse 21, the promise to him that overcomes. It says, to him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and upset down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. So the promise to the overcomers to Laodicea is that they will be able to sit in God's throne. And what does that mean? Revelation 20, you can look, at, look it up later. Re- Revelation 20, verse 4, it simply means they will be given the opportunity to judge. They will be sitting as judges with God. So Revelation 20, verse 4 is a good cross-reference for this verse. And also, it's the fact that this is Laodicea. This is the people being judged themselves. And they're saying, look, when you pass through the judgment, you too will be given the opportunity to to help in uh, making certain decisions, making judgment. All right, so that takes us right into chapter 4. Chapter 4 begins with an, a transition phrase. Transition phrase uh, that's at the end of verse 1. So let's have someone read verse 1 for us. Revelation 4, verse 1. Volunteer, okay, right there. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven, and the, vo- and the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Okay. This verse is very important to identify what time period we're looking at now. Now, prior to... Uh, this verse in chapters 1, 2, and 3, where was John physically 
located? On the island of Patmos, which is on the earth. That's right. And he saw Christ. Christ was walking in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, which represent what? The seven churches. And those churches are on the earth. But now in chapter 4, it says, Come up hither, and there was a door open, right? And it says, I will show you what will be hereafter. Which means, you, you have to, again, Revelation is a visual book. You have to see what's going on. So he's on the, he's on the ground, and then he gets transported up to heaven, and he's standing at an open door. Okay? And the door is open, and Christ says, I will show you what will take place here after, meaning from this open door onward. Now, what door is it? What, what's the only building that we are told about that exists in heaven in the book of Revelation? The temple in heaven. And the temple has two compartments. There's a holy place and a most holy place. And the most holy place does not appear until Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation chapter 4, the holy place door is open. And what Christ is saying is, I will show you what will take place from the opening of the holy place door until the end. So it's like John is standing at the door of the sanctuary looking inside. It's the holy place. And we're going to show you why it is the holy place. And Christ is saying, using this as the picture or the map, I will show you what will take place hereafter. So when John is looking here, when the holy place was open, I'll just throw this out there. It was open when Christ ascended in AD 31. It's about the time when John was alive. So, you know, it's not a stretch to say that it's about the same time that John was alive. But specifically speaking, beginning when Christ ascended into his holy place ministry, that's when this door was open. Okay, so we're going to move on. Verse 2, it says, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Now, what do you suppose John immediately thought when he saw this picture? Just a few verses before, Christ has given the promise, If you overcome, you will sit in my throne. And then immediately Christ shows him God's throne. And so John immediately is very excited. You can imagine, God promised you to sit in his throne, and that's his throne right there. So what's about to happen? John is very interested. And round about the throne, we're going to skip around in this chapter. We're not going to get to talk about everything. Verse 3 is characteristics of God and his throne. I wish we had time to go into this. The jasper, the sardine stone, the rainbow, the emerald, all of those things are very fascinating. But verse 4, we see that there are 24 elders. But verse 5, we see out of the throne proceeds lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne. And this is the reason why we can conclude that this is the holy place. Before the throne of God are seven lamps, which represent the seven branches of the candlestick. Right? And so where are we? We're in the holy place. All right. 
And then also in chapter 4, we are introduced in verse 7, actually verse 6, 7, and 8, to four living creatures known as the four beasts in Revelation 4. Okay. We're trying to hit the high point, so you understand we're not going to go through every single verse in detail. But this is what we see. What I want to talk about particularly are the four beasts, the 24 elders, and then we're going to jump into chapter 5, which is really the main point of what chapter 4 is setting up. Chapter 4 is only setting the stage for what's about to happen in chapter 5. So the four beasts, we see them in Revelation chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, or 6, 7, and 8. Let's see what it says. So in the midst of the throne and round about the throne, I'm in Revelation 4, verse 6, there were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. So this creature is full of eyes, meaning he's very uh, observant. It's a very perceptive creature. This beast can see a lot, okay? That has actually significance. Verse 7, And the first beast was like a lion, and the second beast like a calf. The third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. So we have these four living creatures who look like four different uh, other creatures. That has six wings. Now, what are these creatures? I'm looking at the time. I don't know how far to go. Let me, throw, let me give you some references, okay? <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6, you can look particularly in verses 2 and 6. There is a picture. You remember the story of Isaiah, right? Isaiah was called up to heaven. And uh, in, verse, in chapters 1 through 5, Isaiah said, Woe unto them that do this. Woe unto them that do that. And then in chapter 6, he sees the holiness of God. High and lifted up, his train filled the temple, and he said, Woe is me, because I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And that's when God said, Who will go for us? And, uh, and Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. It's that famous chapter. And in that chapter, Isaiah saw some creatures flying around. They have six wings. With twain they cover their faces. With twain they cover their feet. With twain they fly. That's what it says. And they cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, all the time. So it's a very similar comparison. And those angels in Isaiah 6, they're called seraphims. They're called seraphims. So I'm content to call these four beasts seraphims. And interesting to note that they exist in the Old Testament. There's an important point in that. And also, this, this throws, may throw some people off. In Ezekiel, chapter 1, you can look in, basically it's a whole chapter. He's just describing these four creatures. Uh, they have different faces. Each creature has four faces, and they also have four wings. And the four faces, believe it or not, is the face of a lion, the face of a calf, the face of a man, the face of an eagle. Now, <clears throat> that to me does not, it does not undermine my faith in the Bible. Some people say, hey... 
if they're the same creatures, why do they look differently? Well, remember the book of Revelation and in prophecy, a lot of things are given in symbols. Revelation, right at the beginning, it says the angels signified these things. And so these beasts, they actually represent something. It's not just that they look a certain way. It's that their look represents something significant. Okay? So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave that uh, side point and, dis- and talk specifically about the four, uh, the four types of creatures that these angels look like. Now, in the Old Testament time, in the Exodus time, God designed or gave a pattern for the sanctuary to be built, the tabernacle in the, in the, temp, uh, in, in the wilderness. It was in the center of the camp. And then the camp surrounded it in a square on four sides. So north, south, east, and west. And interestingly enough, the four tribes that are innermost in that circle or in that square have as their symbol or their, uh, the creature on their flag, on their, on their standards, exactly. These exact four creatures... Okay, so Dan, the tribe of Dan, they live, they pitch their camp to the north, immediately to the north of the tabernacle, and they have the sign of the eagle on their standard. And by the way, the side of the north, if you look in Isaiah chapter 14, Satan, Lucifer said, I will ascend to the sides of the north. God's throne is on the north side. North represents God's direction. That's why... When there is the king of the north in Daniel uh, chapter 11, it is a blasphemous power because it claims to be sitting on the side of the north. But God is from the north. So eagle actually is related to divinity. Eagle on the north side related to divinity. On the east, there's Judah. And his standard is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And we're going to see that this description comes up in Revelation chapter 5 about Jesus Christ. On the south, we have the tribe of Reuben. He's the firstborn. Reuben is the firstborn. And the, the standard shows a picture of a man. The man. And then on the west, we have the tribe of Ephraim. And his standard shows the calf, which is a sacrificial or servile animal. And these are the tribes closest to the tabernacle. They are the closest tribes connected to the sanctuary outside of the Levites, of course. And the Levites don't have a particular physical geographic location. So these four creatures are the creatures that are symbolized as those closest involved with the plan of salvation. They're closest to the tabernacle. They are the most observant, you know, the eyes to the character of God as he deals with fallen man. And this is interesting because in chapter 5, the characteristics of these four beasts become absolutely crucial to what transpires in chapter 5. These four beasts are very important. And also, if you just want to flip there real quick, Revelation chapter 6. We're not going to talk about the seals, but I just want to show you something important. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1. It says, And I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard it, as it were, the noise of thunder. One of the four beasts came and said, Come and see. Verse 3. And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. 
Verse 5. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. And then verse 6. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four... Oh, excuse me. I'm talking about verse 7. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast. The first four seals also happened to be the four horsemen of Revelation. The white one, the red one, the black one, the pale one. But all of these four horsemen are directly related to a specific beast. Notice it doesn't say one of the beasts and then one of the beasts, one of the beasts, one of the beasts. They are definite. The first one, the second one, the third one, the fourth one. So the identification of the beast or the characteristics of these beasts are directly related to what the four first four seals are all about. So I'm going to throw that out there. We're going to talk about the seals uh, in a few weeks. And so the four beasts, they, they take on the characteristics of what they're beholding. And what they're beholding is a plan of salvation as found in a sanctuary system. Okay. Now, we also have the 24 elders. 24 elders are very special. And they come up several times in the book of Revelation. So I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time right now on the 24 elders. Uh, but I do want to mention this. Revelation 4 verse 4. They are seated on thrones. So this, again, it, it's directly related to what was promised to Laodicea just in the previous chapter. And seated around the throne, very few creatures have that distinct honor. Most creatures are either flying and proclaiming God's holiness, or they are prostrate before God when in his presence. But very, very few people described in scripture have the privilege of sitting with God. That's why it's such a privilege when Christ promises, if you overcome, I'll let you sit with me in my throne. That's a very high honor. And so these um, 24 elders, they, evidently they are in very important positions. They're dressed also like the redeemed. They have white raiment, they have a crown on their heads, golden crown. And uh, in Revelation chapter 5, I'm just going to skip there because uh, we're not going to have time to go through all of it. Revelation 5 verse 8 and 10, we are told that they carry vials, which are the prayers of the saints in chapter 5 verse 8. So somehow they carry the prayers of the righteous. They somehow play a part in carrying this uh, priestly work. In fact, in uh, Revelation 5 verse 10, they proclaim that they are priests and kings. But more importantly is the identification that they are actually carrying the vials with the prayers in them. Now, what's so significant about the 24 elders? Let me make this one point. When you look in 1 Chronicles, you can write this down, 1 Chronicles chapter 24, it's essentially the whole chapter, but primarily the first 19 verses, verses 1 through 19. We are shown the division of the priesthood. The family of Aaron is divided. His sons and his posterity are divided into, guess how many divisions? 24 priestly divisions. Fascinating. Why is that? Remember, the Bible principle is that upon the word of two or three witnesses, a truth shall be established. I mean, this is very common sense. If you're writing journalism, if you only get information from one source, you tend not to put 
all of your weight on just one source. Unless, of course, it's eyewitness. You know, there's different levels. But if there's two confirming sources, then you have more grounds to believe. In the same way, the priestly ministry, there are two priests for every tribe. 24 priests, 24 divisions, 12 tribes. It is the idea that each tribe has at least two witnesses because the sanctuary service also is in in effect, especially on the Day of Atonement, it's a judgment scenario. It's a system of judgment. So 24 divisions of the priests. So the 24 elders we see here, they play in a way the role of a priest. And they also play a role in the work of standing on behalf of God's people. They hear the prayers, and so they can testify. And it's interesting to note that the few other times you see the 24 elders come up, Revelation chapter 11, when the investigative judgment begins, and also Revelation chapter 7, when the 144,000 are proclaimed. And by the way, the 144,000 in Revelation chapter 7 are identified as the 12 tribes of Israel. So the 24 elders, I'm not, I can't tell you conclusively right now, we're going to study it more later, but I can tell you this, they have an, a vital and essential role in the work of judgment and in the role of determining who is a part of the 144,000. That is a very important work. 24 elders. All right. We're moving on. We're almost to chapter 5. Uh, Revelation chapter 4, verse 11. We're in, we'll look there. It says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For Thou hast created all things, and for Thy pleasure they are and were created. So God is worthy in chapter 4 because He's creator. Okay? I'm just going to make that point. We're going to move on in chapter 5. God is worthy because He's creator. All right. Revelation chapter 5, verse 1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the back side, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Revelation chapter 5, the whole point of this chapter is the book with seven seals and who is worthy to open that book. There's a book with seven seals. It's written on the inside, it's written on the back side, it's written all around and has seven seals locking this book. And who can open it? The seven seals, when you go to them in Revelation chapter 6 through uh, 8, when, you, when each seal is open, it's not a revelation of what's inside the scroll. When you open the seal, a certain event takes place, but it's not necessarily revealing what's inside the scroll. Why do I say that? Let me read um, a few passages to you. This is from the ninth volume of Manuscript Releases, page 7, paragraph 2. It says, There in his open hand lay the book. This is the book with seven seals. 
the role of the history of God's providences, the prophetic history of nations and the church. Herein was contained the divine utterances, his authority, his commandments, his laws, the whole symbolic counsel of the eternal, and the history of all ruling powers in the nations. In symbolic language was contained in that scroll the influence of every nation, tongue, and people from the beginning of earth's history to its close. 7.2. Yes. So in essence, this book is a transcription of all of human history. That's all it is. Every jot, every tittle, every detail, every motive, and very clearly how God participated to make his well known in human history. And uh, I have another quote here. Um, you can ask me for it later. It says essentially the same thing. It says, The destiny of every nation was contained in that book. And so <clears throat> that's what this book with seven seals represents. That's what it is. It's the entire history of the, this world. And it's sealed with seven seals. And no man can open that book. Why? We're going to try to answer that question. So this book is essentially, it's a foreknowledge. It is the detailed transcription of the foreknowledge of God for the history of this world. And no man can look upon it because no man is worthy to make history. Okay, verse 5. So who is able to open this book? And one of the elders said to me, Weep not, behold... The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, in the midst of the elders stood a lamb as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him that sat on the throne. So, we are revealed, introduced to the person who is able to open the book. And now, who is this person? If we want to say in a, in, a, in a word, it's Jesus, yes. But remember, the description of how Jesus is presented is important. Jesus here, he's the lion of the tribe of Judah. Have we heard about lions in the lesson today? One of the four beasts is a lion. He's a root of David. Root of David means he is a posterity of David. He is partaker of our human nature this this individual who is worthy to open the book is also a man okay he is also the lamb that was slain and a lamb is a sacrificial animal just like a calf is a sanctuary sacrificial animal and finally he has the seven spirits of god and who can have the spirit of god except god the four characteristics of the beast, what they are observing. They are spending all day, every day, every sleepless moment, and they don't sleep, watching the character of Jesus. Looking at his character as the lion of the tribe of Judah, as the man Christ Jesus, root of David, as the lamb that was slain, and also as the Spirit of God, or he who possesses the seven spirits of God. These are the characteristics that enable him to open the book. And we can talk a lot more about that. But here's, here's, the, 
here's the gist, okay? This book is Christ's or God's foreknowledge of all of human history. Why then is Christ the only one worthy to look at the book and to open it? It's simply because Christ is the reason that all of this history was permitted to occur. Without Christ, this book would have not ever been able to have been written in the first place. Christ, in other places, he's called the lamb that was slain from the foundation of the world. And Christ, because of his life, his death, and his resurrection, he has given the entire human race the opportunity to have this first existence. Look with me in Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and verse 18. Romans 5 verse 18. It says here, Therefore, as by the offense of one, judgment came upon all men to condemnation. Even so, by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. Now it's clear we know that justification is not granted to all men just because Christ died. The provision was made. But yet it says in that text that because of Christ's death, all men had the justification of life, meaning the justification to actually live, period. What this says is that because Jesus Christ became a man, lived a righteous life, died in our place, and was resurrected to God in heaven. It gave all of us the right to live this first time. The death of Christ gives us that, that chance to choose. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, as far as the law and justice was concerned, they deserved death. But because Christ was willing to die in their place, we are able to live today. And that is why this book can only be opened by Jesus Christ. Because without him, this book would have been invalid. It would not have ever been opened to us. All right. We're coming to a close here. We're just touching on one final point. And in that, in relation to that, uh, verse... 12. Let's look there. Verse 12 says, So the angels and the beasts and the elders, they all say with a loud voice, verse 12, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And every creature was in heaven and on the earth and under the sea and such as are in the sea. And all that are in them heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be to him that sitteth upon a throne and unto the Lamb forever and ever. Remember in Revelation chapter 4, why was God worthy to receive all of these approbations? He was the creator. But in Revelation chapter 5, we see Christ now, he's worthy because he's redeemer. Christ, God is worthy of our praise, of all power, glory, honor, blessing, what have you. Because number one, he's creator. And number two, because he's redeemer. And the book with seven seals will be opened one day very soon. But until that day, what we need to realize 
is that the Lamb that is opening the book is waiting for us to make that choice so that we will be ready to see that book when it's un- unrolled, so that we will not be on the wrong side because He has already given His life so that this role can be written in the first place. And so in two weeks, no class next week, in two weeks we're going to talk about the seven seals. And you won't want to miss that.